Well, turn with me, if you will, this morning to the first epistle of Peter uh, and chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This epistle was written to believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and yet it is a, an epistle that is full of relevance and meaning uh, to us today. It's a very practical epistle as, very as, uh, as well as a very spiritual one. Um, if we were to try and summarize uh, this epistle in a few words, it would be the words salvation, submission, sympathy uh, and suffering. Well, we're only going to deal with the first of uh, those thoughts this morning, uh, that the message of salvation. I want to think this morning about the Christian's sure salvation. The Christian's sure salvation. In verse 2, Peter says that he is writing to the elect, to those who have been chosen by God. Uh, and this election, he says, was according to the foreknowledge of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, these are things that are very difficult to take in. Election is a, a very difficult subject, uh, one that we can't fully understand and perhaps we shouldn't try to. Warren Wearsby quotes an old college professor who said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. Try to explain it away, and you may lose your soul. And yet it should be a, a source of comfort and assurance to us that our salvation is his work and not ours. Paul says, he who began a good work in you will also finish it or complete it. I want to note, just note in passing the, uh, the work of the Trinity in our election. It says here that it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is through the sanctification of the Spirit and it is by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in the work of salvation. Well, we're going to focus our thoughts this morning on verses 3 to 12 of uh, chapter 1. And this is, I would suggest, one of the most forceful and emphatic passages in Scripture on the subject of the Christian's salvation. Just note the phraseology used here uh, before we look at anything else. Uh, in verse 3, he doesn't just talk about mercy, but he refers to abundant mercy, something which is unlimited. Uh, and again, in the same verse, in talking about hope, he says a lively hope, something that is real uh, and active. And then in verse 4, talking uh, about our inheritance, he says it is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading. And then in verse 7, it talks about faith that is much more precious than gold. And in verse 8, Peter talks about joy unspeakable, something too, too wonderful to fully explain. Well, there's something very special, something very wonderful that is being revealed to us here. And Peter 
the simple fisherman, inspired by the Holy Spirit, waxes eloquent uh, on this subject. In verse 9, he talks about the end of true faith in Christ, which is the salvation of our souls. This is not some added extra in life. It's not a box to tick and, and, and then forget about. It's something vital, something wonderful, uh, and something of everlasting importance. Imagine you'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer uh, and then somehow wonderfully healed. It's not just something you'd, you'd shrug off and say, oh, well, that was nice. You'd feel elated. You'd want to tell others about it. And so it is with salvation. If you know the salvation of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's something that affects your whole life and it's something that you want others uh, to know as well. Well, I want to begin by noting here five aspects of our salvation, five aspects of salvation, five things that every Christian has. Uh, and the first thing in verse 3 that we have is a second birth. It says he has begotten us again. He's begotten us again. We have a new birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. George Whitfield was once asked why he preached so often on that particular text. And he said, because ye must be born again. It's something imperative. It's something vital. Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the question this morning is, are you born again? You can't be saved unless you are. But if you are born again, then you'll know it. Jesus likens it to the wind. We can't see it, but we can hear it. We can feel it. And we know that it's real. If you ask whether you're born again, the answer might be no. Because it's a very real experience. It's something that you know in your heart and soul. We were all born into this world. We had a physical birth. But we need to be born again. We need a spiritual birth. And it's not just a change of mind or even a change of heart. It's a complete spiritual change brought about by the Holy Spirit. We become a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something that we can bring about. It's linked to the mercy of God. Peter says, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. Paul tells us in Titus 3 that God saved us, not because of our works, but according to his mercy. We're not saved by works. We are saved by the grace of Almighty God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23, Peter tells us that we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And because it's the work of God, it is an everlasting work. What must I do to be saved is a good question. It's a vital question. 
but sadly it, it can become a snare to some people. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? There are so many think that they've got to do something uh, to earn uh, their salvation. But we can't do anything. We must simply cast ourselves uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it all for us when he died on the cross. He died in our place. He bore our sin. He took the punishment that we rightly deserve. And now he wants to give us the free gift of eternal life. Every Christian has a second birth. The next thing that we have is a living hope. It says, begotten again unto a lively hope. Birth brings forth life, and the life here is evidenced by a living hope. What is hope? Well, in general terms, we'd say it's a, it's a desire, it's an expectation. We hope to have good weather on a certain day. We hope to see someone soon. But this is more than that. It's not a vague aspiration. It's a living hope. Indeed, it's not so much a hope uh, as a knowledge, a sure and certain fact. The Bible says that God is the living God, as opposed to false gods. He's not an idol. He's not made with hands. He's not devised by man's thought. He is living. He is real and he makes himself known to us. And so too, this is a living hope. It is a sure and certain promise. Coronavirus seems to have been quite a while ago now, but if we think back to that time and the start of the outbreak and lockdown, we hoped at the beginning that a cure would be found, but there was no certainty it would be or how long it would take. Uh, and then a little later on, they told us they were, were close to developing a vaccine and things seemed a, a little bit more hopeful, but there was still uh, uncertainty. And then they, next they announced that trials were successful uh, and things became more promising. Uh, and then as millions were, were vaccinated, the hope became more sure. And we can see from that there are different levels of hope. We thought, well, will it work out? How long will it take? Well, that's a poor illustration, perhaps, because we're dealing here with something far more sure and certain than that. It is a living hope. It is a living hope, we're told, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope because we have a living Saviour. He died for our sins, but he rose again victorious. And because he conquered death, he can give us eternal life. But it's even more than that. People say to me, well, it's, it, it's nice, I can see you've got faith, but, but you can't be sure uh, about these things. When Jesus rose from the dead, the, uh, the women went and told uh, the disciples, but they didn't believe. It, it, it was too wonderful to accept they hoped, perhaps, but somehow they just couldn't believe it. And then the risen Christ appeared to them himself. He spoke to them, and now they believed. It wasn't just a hope, but it was a living hope. They had seen and spoken to the risen Saviour. 
And a true Christian is someone who has met with the risen Saviour. He reveals himself to us. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. I can't give you this experience and I can't prove that I have it. But if Christ speaks to you, it will be a very real and a living experience and you will have assurance within on this matter. You will have that living hope that Peter speaks of here. Paul in the epistle to Titus exhorts us to live godly lives, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The third thing we have here is an incorruptible inheritance. Verse 4, he has given us an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. An incorruptible inheritance. It won't die or pass away or disappear. It cannot be corrupted by rust or by moth. It won't decay with age or even fade with time. What is this inheritance? Well, it can be summed up in one word. Heaven. Heaven. Our eternal inheritance. A place of peace and joy and glory and everlasting life. A place where there is no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no curse, no sin, no night. A place where we will see God and dwell forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1-2 says that God has appointed Jesus the heir of all things. It's not speaking about some future event because he already owns all things. He sits upon his father's throne and rules jointly with him. And Romans 8 verse 17 tells us that Christians are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He has appointed us to share his inheritance with him. The legal definition of an inheritance is something that is passed at the owner's death to the heir or to those entitled to succeed. And it's a sad fact of life that in order to receive an inheritance there has to be a death. Hebrews 9 is a, a very difficult chapter, I'm not going to turn to it now, but it, it talks about our inheritance. It tells us that Christ has made a covenant to grant us an eternal inheritance. But it also says that where there is a will, there must be the death of the one who made it. And so Christ had to die to bring that covenant, that promise, into effect. But having died, having satisfied the law, he rose again from the dead. And the implication of all this is that we are now heirs with Christ. And so Peter says that God has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. 
This is the, the promise of God to all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If we are born again, nothing and no one can take that from us. But there's something else here, therefore, that we have, and that is a saving faith. In verse 5, it says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Romans tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. If it, if it is by faith, then it means we are trusting in God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is so with us, then we have a sure and saving faith. We're saved from sin, we're saved from judgment, and we're saved for heaven. If we are Christians, we, we know that already. But it talks here about salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's because salvation is an ongoing process. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. Once we're saved, nothing can change that. But the full extent of our salvation won't be revealed until Jesus comes again. John tells us this in his epistle, chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so if we are saved, we rejoice in the knowledge of sins forgiven, but we wait patiently for the day when his work in us will be complete. And we have confidence in that matter. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Do you have that personal knowledge of Jesus Christ? And are you confident that he will keep your soul for all eternity. Well, knowing therefore that he can and will keep us, we have, or we will have, acceptance at Christ's appearing. Acceptance at Christ's appearing. Look at verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's telling us that life's trials test the genuineness of our faith. God is with us through the trials and through the storms of life. And ultimately, God uses all these things for our good. But if our faith is genuine, when Jesus comes again, we will receive praise and honour and glory. We'll be accepted by him. We'll be granted entrance 
to the heavenly kingdom. We may feel that we're not worthy of such blessings, and we aren't. The closer we are to God, the more we recognize our unworthiness. But let's remember that it's Christ who died to save us. It is God the Father who has caused us to be born again. And it is the Holy Spirit that performs the work of salvation in us. And so the praise and honour and glory really belong to God and not to us. Nevertheless, he is pleased to shower his people with benefits and he imparts blessings to us that we don't deserve of ourselves. A lovely uh, illustration of this acceptance is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David was king over all Israel. He defeated his enemies uh, and he sought out the grandson of Saul who had previously been his enemy. A man by the name of Mephibosheth who was a cripple and who was hiding in fear for his life. And David brings Mephibosheth into his own house. He makes him like a son. He shows kindness to him and he provides for him continually. We see there that he bestows undeserved and unmerited favour on this man. And that's what God shows to us. Mephibosheth was accepted for the sake of Jonathan, his father, who had been David's friend. And we are accepted by God for Jesus' sake. He is the one who makes us worthy and acceptable in the sight of God. Of all the benefits that we have, perhaps the greatest is to be accepted by him and allowed into his presence to one day hear him say, enter into the joy of your Lord, and to be received not as a servant, but as a child of God. And so there, is, there are five things that the Christian has. A second birth, a lively hope, an incorruptible inheritance, a saving faith, and acceptance with God. And they are given to us, through the abundant mercy of Almighty God. But then I just want to note briefly the effects of salvation. Salvation is something that can't go unnoticed. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, and that change will be evident. There are three things mentioned here that will be evident in those who are saved. The first one is love, uh, in verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. We love him, uh, and we love him because he first loved us. We haven't seen Christ with our physical eyes, but we love him. Uh, and this is one of the, uh, the primary characteristics uh, of the Christian. It's the evidence of, uh, uh, of conversion uh, and true faith that we love uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. Some claim to serve God but have no love for Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if, you were, if God were your father, you would love me, 
For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Do you feel and know that love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you're a true Christian, you won't have to stop and think uh, about that question. You know that he loves you and you know that you love him. And if you love him, you'll have that desire to, to follow him uh, and to serve him uh, and to tell others uh, about him. The second evidence uh, is joy. It's there in, in verse uh, 8 again. Whom having not seen ye love, in whom that, that though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy is linked with love. If we know we're saved, we love the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we love him, uh, then we will have that, that abundant joy that is spoken of here. Joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. It can't be fully explained or understood. It's too wonderful to describe, but it's something that is nevertheless very real to every believer. To know that you are a, a child of God, that your sins are forgiven, uh, and that you have uh, eternal life. Well, we should be joyful if we have uh, assurance uh, of these things. Even the trials of life can't stop us rejoicing uh, in, the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the epistle to the Philippians, Paul has much to say on this subject of joy. He talks about joy in prayer, joy at the preaching of God's word, joy in the fellowship and unity of believers, joy in the knowledge of Christ's promise to return. He emphasizes the importance of joy in the Christian faith. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There is that double uh, emphasis. He pre presents it uh, uh, as a command. We are to rejoice uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that the, uh, the world can't understand. It can't do because it's never experienced it. You can't know the joy of salvation unless you are saved. And the third evidence uh, is praise. Uh, this passage uh, began in verse 3 with praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well again it follows on from these things. If we love him we have joy, and if we have joy, it will overflow in praise uh, to Almighty God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has a similar theme in Ephesians 1 verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. When Peter and John healed a lame man, we're told that he went into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. And so too should we when we know that we are saved. The end of our faith, it tells us in verse 9, is the salvation of our souls. That is cause indeed to give praise and thanks and worship to Almighty God. 
I remember the night 53 years ago when I became a Christian. I lay awake half the night simply praising God and thanking him for saving me. Do you have cause this morning to praise God? Do you rejoice in that salvation that he's given to you? Well, here are the tests. Do we love him? Do we rejoice in him? Do we praise him? Uh, and finally, and very briefly, we note here the source uh, of salvation, the source of our salvation. Verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. We're told that our salvation was foretold by the prophets. We can read the prophecies about salvation and about the Saviour in the Old Testament. It was foretold by the prophets. It was revealed by the Holy Spirit to them and today to us. It was procured by the death of Christ through the shedding of his blood. It is declared through the gospel as it is preached today. This is God's means of bringing people to salvation in Christ. And Peter develops this theme in the following verses. And then we come to that tremendous statement in verses 18 and 19. I'm not going to develop this in detail. I preached on it here, I think, about four years ago now. Uh, but verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We are not redeemed with silver or gold or any such thing, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sacrificed himself for us upon the cross. He laid down his life for our sins, and then he rose again victorious from the dead. And the chapter ends by reminding us of the, uh, the frailty of life uh, and the need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen.